Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Al Bolowski, and welcome to Catholic Mysticism this evening, December 27th, feast day of John, St. John the Evangelist. And I hope you and your family had a very blessed uh, Christmas and uh, hope you grew closer to the Lord at that time. And uh, up here in Connecticut, and I guess it's certainly Erie, Pennsylvania, we had a white Christmas like Bing Crosby used to sing. And it, uh, it was pretty. It was really, really, really pretty. And I don't remember the last time it actually snowed on Christmas Day, but it's been a while. And keep those people in Erie, Pennsylvania uh, they've had five feet of sl- snow and wicked wind and wind chill, so keep them in your prayers. Uh, they'll need them. Okay. Uh, if you want to uh, call the show with any questions or any comments, the number is 515-604-9344, and they're going to ask for an uh, access code, and just punch in 914 914- one, two, one pound, and that'll put you on the show live, and uh, you can uh, discuss any matters or comments that you wish. Again, the number is 515-604-9344-914-121 pound. Okay, since we're still in the octave in the eighth day of uh, Christmas, it's such a great feast like Easter that the church in its wisdom extends it, and that way we can... Uh, prolong all the joy and, and fun of Christmas uh, for several days, uh, it's a good time to talk on some of the mysticism that we have in our Catholic Church, especially with the saints, and miracles. Because today we seem to not be too open to miracles. And we live in a very high-tech age with a lot of information, a lot of scientific advances and research done since way back when. And many people are very skeptical of miracles. They're skeptical of the faith. They're skeptical, skeptical of the gospel itself and that Jesus died and rose from the dead. So they become, in a way, like doubting Thomas. And miracles are given for us to help us and edify us and grow in the faith to grow closer to our Lord. Because the Lord doesn't need anything that we can give him except our hearts, ourselves, to him. Um, These are done for us, and they give glory to him when you see some of the miracles. Now, we need to, we've talked uh, some on becoming childlike with the way we look at the uh, mystical and the way we look at heaven and the supernatural in general. And while being childlike, it's not the same as being naive or being foolish. Faith and reason, as we know from the wisdom of the church, go hand in hand. The Catholic Church, contrary to uh, some belief, is not afraid of science or reason or opposed to either. They go hand in hand, and they encourage it. They encourage science exploration and medical uh, technology and advancement as long as it's ethical. And there's no problem that the church has with this. So being childlike then is to be trusting in that Father's care for us and having our hearts open to what we cannot explain. Because really when you come down to it, there's no faith really in the fact that you expect things, they don't surprise you, and it's just by a a rote, day-in and day-out type of uh, living that you expect things to happen, and they do. That's not really the kind of faith that we're talking about here. The faith is to actually, to believe in the impossible. That's a childlike faith we want. That we have to, as children, not have to know the reason for everything, to have every I dotted and every T crossed in the faith, but to accept things that we cannot have control over and accept things that we don't have the answer to. And especially in today's age, that is difficult. 
I would guess certainly in the medieval times when uh, many people feel that, that this was the closest age in which people really were connected to God and the spiritual. Because everything, everything, and I mean that, in that time was connected to God. His creatures, his creation, themselves, everything they said, thought, and did had a supernatural meaning. So they were very close. Also in that time, there were no distractions like we have today. They certainly didn't have the electronics, the lighting that we have 24-7, and, and the many, many, many inventions since that time uh, uh, of the Industrial Revolution because they were agricultural and they lived with the land and off the land. So they were very close and very connected to God. And in turn, they had many blessings and they had many, many supernatural gifts given and they were open to them. So many, many good things happened to those people, even during the tough times, because they were not exempt from that, as we talked last week on the Christmas show about the Holy Family being exempt from any suffering or hardships. Certainly the, the medieval ages, they had uh, terrible wars, they had famine, they had poverty, they had the bubonic plague, uh, divisions, just like we do today. You know, we have the, the same problems that human beings have with illness and, and sicknesses and divisions. And everything since the Garden of Eden, that original sin has grabbed us as human beings by. But they were open. And today there may be in our society a closeness of that heart uh, to the supernatural and that very thin veil that separates the reality that we know here on earth from the very, if not more, uh, real reality of the supernatural world. And we can still get that. But perhaps uh, this is one of the reasons the saints are a good place to start with miracles because they truly, co-workers with God, so close to God that he could reveal himself to them. And in their childlike, not, not now naive, but their childlike faith, they were open and given these gifts. Because that's one of the things we want to be when we say childlike. We want to be in awe. We should be in awe of some of the things we take for granted, like the gift of vision, if you have it. An incredible gift to be able to see the colors and the rainbows in the sky and to be able to read and to be able to go to sporting events and watch them, and just simple things like bird singing, which we miss all, all the time, or the smell of flowers, or beautiful sunsets, which still have the ability, and uh, it's a good thing, to inspire awe in us. That's the type of thing we want to try to get, is when we see, think like, see things like this in creation or in each other, that it's just awe-inspiring. And certainly we're, create, we're creatures of God, and, and uh, we certainly take each other, uh, me too, for granted like that many, many, many times, and yet we are daughters and sons of Christ and made in the image of him, and it's exciting, but we do take things for granted, all of us. So if we can start to get away from that pattern of thought, we may be open to more supernatural gifts that we can receive, and that's going to bring us closer to God, of course, and others. So the saints having this type of discipline and, and disposition God is able to work miracles through them. Because what, what does he say? I believe it's in the Gospel of John. Believe me that I and the Father are one. That I am in the Father and the Father is me, is in me. And if you can't believe that, then to believe in the works that he does. So he says, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these, because I am going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do, so that the Father may be glorified by the Son. So there you have it. Jesus himself is promising that. He himself, the miracle worker. And we'll go right back to Scripture to see the miracles, which again, remember I just mentioned a moment ago, that we take many things for granted. And today there's uh, tendency to dismiss some of the miracles that Jesus did in the Bible, in the Gospels, as maybe uh, some type of uh, event that happened back then that they couldn't explain, so they chalked it up to some kind of supernatural event. And that's not true. 
that's a bad way, in my opinion, to, to deal with the faith. Or that, I've mentioned this before, when demons uh, Jesus had cast out, had exercised, that people today try to, well, you know, it might have been epilepsy, it might have been a psychological disturbance. And I've, again, I've mentioned that when the ancients would hear uh, someone talking in languages that they never did before, and levitate, eyes rolled back in the head, and predicting future events. I think they knew the difference. I truly do believe this. Between that uh, uh, demonic possession and some type of uh, psychological disturbance. I think they knew this, the difference. So it's difficult to chalk that up. It's difficult to chalk up some of the things that we try to explain away in the Bible as not miraculous, that they were maybe, in worst case scenario, like a fairy tale or a myth. But we must remember something in myths. And this is true of Scripture, and this is true for those people that want to believe that it's a myth, and this is true for myths in general. There is always an underlying element of truth. And that's what we tend to forget and strip away, that in these legends or myths, there is truth, and we need to get at that truth, because that's the important part for us to grasp, is the truth in the stories. So, when we see that Jesus raised uh, the widow's son that had died because she would have been in dire straits without her son as a woman with nothing and nobody. She would have had a very, very difficult life at best. And Jesus knew this. And in his compassion, he raised, not resurrected now, but resuscitated her son because that son would die again, like Lazarus. So, the little girl that they laughed at Jesus when he said she is merely sleeping, and she, they laughed and said, no, no, she's dead. Jesus raised her from the dead. Again, resuscitated her to die again, but on the last day, like you and I, at that judgment day, will be resurrected, because Jesus did this first, and we will uh, reap that reward if we follow him. So, when we look at Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just a few items of food, when we look at Jesus healing the leper and healing the woman that had been hemorrhaging for 18 years, the paralytic, and we would look on through the miracles and we see them and see that he has passed them down to the apostles, that they were able to raise the dead and heal people just by their shadow or a handkerchief, an article of their clothing, and they were able to exercise demons. We see that gospel passage coming true because they followed Christ and he made that promise. So the saints, it shouldn't surprise us then that the servants of God are able to do the most remarkable miracles. And I want, if anything else from this show, I want the takeaway to be that you start to have an open heart to believe in them because you can see them. And if you listen to one of them, the shows here of the Catholic mysticism are archived, and you can go into the website and pick the show you want to want, uh, listen to. rather. My story on Fatima and my conversion story are there with the miracles that I witnessed and got me to uh, follow Jesus and become a follower, a Christian of his. And... You know, one of the things you can see with these miracles is that when people have these uh, incredible supernatural experiences, that one of the safeguards, if you will, that is genuine, is that these people do not go back to the, their, their former lives and do what they were doing. And we know this because one of the, the most uh, important right up there with Peter, apostles, is the one that was the apostle of the Gentiles. And that, of course, I'm talking about St. Paul. And we know, or we should know, and if you don't, this will be some interesting news to you, that he was a devout Jew who was a Pharisee. And when Christians started cropping up, Paul, in his heart, he was known as Saul at that time, truly believed he was justified in exterminating this new cult. 
And he spearheaded dragging out men, women, and children to be tortured, put in prison, and killed. And we know yesterday, the day after Christmas, we celebrated St. Stephen the Martyr's Feast Day, and we know who was there collecting the cloaks was a man named Saul. And Saul was zealous. And he didn't just, in the local area, pursue Christians. He decided he'd go outside the local area. So this was a guy intent, and in his heart justified, which made him very, very dangerous to Christians. Because we know that when people in their hearts feel they are doing right, even if it's something morally we disagree with, that they think they're doing right and it's wrong, they're a dangerous, dangerous weapon. Because they think they're doing good. When in essence, it's evil. So Paul, on the road to Damascus, has a profound supernatural experience. He gets knocked off the donkey and is told by Jesus and asked by Jesus, why are you persecuting me? And this profound supernatural experience gets Paul to never, ever, ever go back to his old ways. He will suffer shipwreck almost death several times. He is tortured, flogged. He is put in prison. He undergoes incredible rejection and hardships. He has successes and he has failures. But the one thing he does not do is go back to where he came from. Because now Paul becomes a defender of Christ crucified and also Christianity. And he will never turn from that. And he, as we know, he will become a martyr. But he will never, never go back. And he will never, ever say that Jesus Christ is not God. Even when it cost him his life. And that is a genuine supernatural experience. And that's what you want to look for for the people that have. That's one way to be discerning. I did a, a show on discernment, so... Uh, you can archive that and check into some of the uh, pointers, if you would, uh, to help you out with that in your own supernatural experiences. Now, that being said, we have to remember, though, now that the saints and these servants, they had tremendous power from Jesus. Remember, it's all, and the saints would be the first to tell you this, it's all Jesus Christ working through the miracles. And just as a sidebar, to go back to Scripture for a minute, it's good when you read in a childlike way to accept those miracles for what they are because they are written down and they are true and they helped establish a church that is flourishing today when the Roman Empire, which is at the pinnacle of height, is long gone. So those people saw something. Those people witnessed something that was so remarkable, so outside of their ordinary daily lives that once they accepted Christ as the Messiah, they were willing to be also martyred. And those that were killed aren't the only type of martyrs. We know that the Thessalonians underwent a, martyr, a martyrdom for several years. No, not, not being killed, but being because of their belief in Christ and not offering their worship to the idols, they were shunned by their friends, their family, and their business associates, which would make it hard for them to earn a living. And on top of all this, going against the state at that time could be see, seen as an act of sedition because it was authorized by the state to worship these idols. So there's several types of martyrdom there. And they went, underwent years of this. And it's very difficult, very difficult. But they hung true to the faith because what Paul had preached to them, they could see. And they witnessed. And they were a good witness at that time. So these saints then, they could raise the dead. There was miraculous cures, healings. They had the gift of prophecy, bilocation, the stigmata. Now, what the stigmata 
is that's where certain individuals, one of the most famous because he's from uh, the modern age, passed away in 1968, is Padre Pio. And he had the wounds in his hands. Now others, St. Francis is another famous one. St. Francis suffered greatly. The stigma is not just a uh, wound, say, in the hands or the feet, or at certain times, um, Blessed Ag- Alexandrina of uh, Portugal, who was a young woman that soldiers tried to rape. And instead, she would not let her body be defiled. She leapt out of her bedroom window, and she became paralyzed from that time on as a young girl and lived her life that way, bedridden. But she would experience the agony that Christ went through in the Passion, and blood would be on her forehead. And what's amazing is that she subsisted on only the Eucharist for most of her life. An awesome story. That's all she would take, like St. Catherine of Siena. But uh, Blessed Alagenia, she's not a saint yet, is very well beloved in Portugal. And she suffered dramatically. And my point here is whether it was Padre Pio, whether it is uh, St. Francis, or Blessed Alexandrina, or some people now. And again, when when we look at this from the modern times, now, the the other ones, church approved, you can't miss. So 100% can put your faith in that. Some of the ones say, be discerning. Wait till the church makes a, a determination on it. And then you can, you can rest assured once it does. If that's not the case, be discerning. Because people get things supernaturally, just the day as they did back in Jesus' time and after Jesus was crucified and ascended. So you, like them, have to be discerning. But it goes on, because those people back then did doubt too. And you should have a certain bit of skepticism so you're not pulled in. See, that's the difference. I mentioned childlike faith by not, by not being naive. You just don't accept every supernatural thing that happens. You can get into trouble like that. So you need to be discerning. Like I said, you can go to the show. You have a spiritual director. There's some great programs on discernment. Uh, in books, EWTN has shows on them as well as their catalog site, and you could get some great information on that. But these things are still happening today. Miracles are still happening today. But some of the stigmata also had the crown of thorns, and they would see the crown of thorns around the people's heads. Another gift is that they had mystical knowledge. We're going to talk about these things. I'm just going down a list that some of them had. They were able to levitate and have flights. They actually flew in ecstasy. They heard voices from heaven, and they had the gift of understanding, speaking in foreign and ancient biblical languages. Certainly, miracles with animals. We'll talk about that. And, you know, some of the saints, St. Bernadette Subiru, the famous saint of Lourdes, and St. John Vianney, their bodies, when they died, were not corrupted like ours will. They didn't decay. Most recent saint is... St. Jacinta Marto, when they exhumed her body years later after she died of the Spanish flu, it was incorrupt. So there are many, many things. You know, I had mentioned already Blessed Alexandria and St. Catherine of Siena just existing on the Eucharist. Now, this is all documented. Now, obviously, there's some kind of hoax. These, these two women would have died just from being malnourished. They would have died. But think about that. Eucharist, Eucharist, self-sustaining, the body, blood, soul, and divinity, life itself that Jesus has left us to sustain us and to glorify him and to give witness. Those two women were able to um, fast, if you would, just on Eucharist. And for, like I mentioned with Blessed Alexandria, it was for 13 years. Think about that. And this was a bedridden woman, paralyzed, who suffered greatly. Who suffered greatly. So these things are for our edification, and I, I just think they're awesome. And don't be afraid of them. 
But be discerning when we have these today in our time. But the church ones take great comfort that the ones approved by the church are right on the money. And you can be very, uh, very happy with that to uh, build up your faith. So we'll go into some things like bilocution. Now, in case you don't know what that means, I'm going to use a story uh, about Padre Peel. Bilocution, location, excuse me, means being in two places at the same time. So, there was a lady, a Mrs. Concetta Bellamerni, and she was in Lanciano, Italy, which is if uh, you know your Eucharistic miracles, that was a big one. And she was stricken with a blood infection from pneumonia. And she was, got so sick that the doctors at that time didn't think she'd be saved. She was going to die because her flesh had become yellow and the infection had spread throughout her body. So she's suffering tremendously. And a relative urges her to direct her prayers to Padre Pio. And, of course, she had never seen Padre Pio. And she started praying to him. And in full daylight now, suddenly, with his stigmata, a monk appeared to her. And smiling, this monk blessed her without touching her as he stood in the middle of the room. And the woman asked him if his appearance signified the grace for conversion of her children or grace uh, for a physical cure. And this monk answered, On Sunday morning, you will be cured. And with that, he vanished from the room, leaving an odor of perfume, which the servant girl of that woman also smelled. After this monk's visit, her flesh turned to normal cover, color, the fever broke, and on Sunday morning, as the monk predicted, she was restored. Later, she went to a town with her brother called San Giovanni Rotondo to see if Padre Pio was the one who appeared to her. And when she arrived at the monastery and saw Padre Pio in the church, she turned to her brother and said, There he is. He is the one. And that is a bilocution of Padre Pio. Two places at one time. In his monastery and in Lanciano, healing the woman with a vision that she saw in daylight. Now, how awesome is that? And, of course, Padre Pio is not the only one. Other saints have had that. So it is an incredible gift, and it's an incredible miracle. And, again, you stick with the church ones, and you can believe in these wholeheartedly. Now, mystical knowledge, what's that? And that, you know, people get certainly today. It's the gift of reading into hearts. Now, I'm not going to do another Padre Pio, but I just want to make really a quick uh, note that Padre Pio had this gift also, and he was able in the confession to tell people when they did not confess the sins or they held something back, he knew it. And he told them about it. <laughs> so if you put yourself in that place, just for a minute, in that confessional, with a man, and you know you're holding something back, you've, you've made a confession, but there's just one thing, and he turns and said, you're not done. I got news for you. Think about that. Where would that come from? Where would that come from? Anyway, do a different one. I mentioned one of the incorrupt saints in John Vianney, the curer of the R's. And he, of course, is one of the patron saints for vocation. So please pray to St. John Vianney um, for vocations for our young boys into the priesthood and, and girls into religious life. Now, he had many, many mystical experiences. And if you, uh, he was a very uneducated man, very uneducated, very simple man, very simple. And by that, I don't mean simple in lifestyle. He was that too, but I mean simple, simple in the head. And yet, if you listen to or read some of his sermons or get a biography on him, it's fascinating. He, wrestled, he literally had fights, physical fights with the devil. And every time that he had a physical fight, that the devil would appear to them and they would fight, he knew that the very next day there was going to be a big catch of fish, as he said, a big fish for God, because he knew that Satan was trying, trying to thwart him and throw a wrench in that plans and disturb him from doing what he needed to do for God. So he was wise enough to know that when these things happened, it meant something great 
was going to happen for the kingdom of God. Anyway, about the year 1840, there was a man named Rochette, and he took his son, who was sick, to the wonder worker of ours. And the man's wife accompanied him, and they went to confession and received Holy Communion. And as for Rochette, he had but one concern, and namely that was to obtain the cure of his son. And what father or what mom wouldn't want that for their child, right? They'll sacrifice themselves for their child. And he paid a few visits to the church, but he always kept in the neighborhood of the holy water font. And there he was when the saint, coming from behind the altar, where he was hearing confessions of the priest, began to call him. And he didn't want to budge, Mr. Uh, Rochette. And at that moment, his wife and his son were very close to the altar rails. And is he really that much of an unbeliever, Father Vianney asked the wife. And at last, at the third summons, the man decided to walk up. After all, he thought, the cure will not eat me. So he went with Father Vianney behind the altar. And there was no time for him to lose. This is for both of us, Rosette, said the priest. And pointing to the confessional, he said, go into there. Oh, Rochette replied, I don't feel like that. Well, Father Vianney said, we'll begin here then. Now, incapable of offering any resistance to another attack, Rochette had fallen on his knees. And he said, my father, it has been some time, ten years. Make a little more. Remember what I, I said, that gift of mystical knowledge. St. John Vianney knew that he wasn't quite telling the truth. And what did Rochette say? Twelve years then. And what did Vianney reply? Uh, still a little yet more. Yes, he said, Rochette, since the great Jubilee of 1826. So here's a guy that hadn't been into confession for 14 years. Remember, this story is taking place in 1840. And Vianney says, there you go. There you go. Now we'll find what we're looking for. Rochette made his confession like a child. The following day, he was kneeling by the side of his wife at the altar rails. Their boy, now he was faithful, left the church of ours without his two crutches, for which he had no further use. The father was cured of his spiritual illness, and the son was completely physically healed. A double miracle. Double miracle. And again, these things are for the edification for believers to build the faith to bring us closer to Christ. Christ gives these gifts. Now, it's been a great mystery that why some are here, why some aren't. Only God knows the mystery. And that's what I meant about being childlike. The part here is that to accept the miraculous, to accept those miracles. And at this will is for our edification. But it's, again, not being naive, but being willing to accept things that happen like the story with St. John Vianney. Now, we mentioned voices. And there was a saint called Clelia Barbieri. And she died of excuse me, tuberculosis in July 13, 1870. And this is not all that long ago. She was only 23. And her last words to her religious sisters were prophetic. She told them, be brave, because I am going to paradise, but I shall always remain with you too, and I shall never abandon you. Now, change a couple words here and there, and we go back to Scripture. That's what Christ tells his apostles, and that's what Jesus tells you and I, that he will always be with us, until the end of the world, and he will not abandon us, and we are not orphans. So, we can take a good, firm hold on that, what Christ tells us, and hold on to it during our crosses, because that's the truth coming from Jesus himself. Now, the prophecy from Clelia was realized as soon as she proved her presence by the sounding of her voice. So, that miraculous phenomena of her voice took place during the evening of July 13, 1871, one year after her death, while the sisters were at prayer in the chapel. Now, again, these are the ones that you can hold on to. And, and you don't have to be too worried about 
uh, being misled. But these are, again, the sister's words uh, that she was uh, in the order. Suddenly there was a sound of a high-pitched, harmonious, and heavenly voice that accompanying the singer in the choir. At times it sang solo. At other times it harmonized with the choir, moving across from right to left. Sometimes his voice passed close by the ears of one or other of the sisters. And the joy that it brought filled our hearts with a happiness impossible for us to put into words. Now, we knew that this wasn't of this world. We lived that day, the sisters, in paradise. From time to time, one of us had to leave the room. And the emotion that we experienced was so strong that it left you breathless until one had to call out, Enough, dear Lord, enough. And remarkably, her voice is still heard today. Now, how awesome is that? How awesome is that? That is so cool to me. Now, we have prophecy, as I mentioned, excuse me, in the lives of the saints. Let me give you a story here uh, at a convent in Besnacon from France, and it's St. Colette. Told an event that would take place in the next century now. And it was a great fire, she said, that would burn the convent building to the ground. And the nuns were, of course, horrified. Who wouldn't be if that was something that came in, somebody told us, you know what, when in a year's time, your house is going to be gone. And they pressed the saint to tell them if the fire could be stopped. And that's what we would certainly want to do to prevent any tragedy. And Colette shook her head sadly and told the nuns, when the brig cross out there in the cemetery falls down across the graves, they will know that the fire is about to come. Let them be warned and run out of the house, but they will not be able to prevent the disaster. And the nuns who heard this prophecy from the St. Slips wrote the warning in the convent's archives for their sisters in the next century. Again, this is what I mean about discernment and documentation. So, it was in 1510, 60 years later, that the great cross fell over on the graves. The nuns were terrified and began at once to take every precaution to prevent the fire that had been predicted. However, their endeavors were to no avail. The fire began and destroyed the convent the next day. And it's said that perhaps God not only wanted to show that he was guiding his servant Colette and her community throughout the ages, but also the indestructibility of the spiritual community that Colette had built through the grace of God. Through the grace of God. That's the important part to remember. Since the covenant, the convent, excuse me, was rebuilt soon afterwards. And it remains there to this day. So there is one of the examples of a prophecy. Now, one of the things that I find remarkable is the levitation and ecstatic flights. Now, maybe some of you um, have heard of this saint. Up here in Connecticut, uh, there is a uh, center that saves babies. And it was started by a Teresa Krankowski, and they've done some incredible work uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. And it's named after St. Gerard Magella. And this saint was often enraptured into remarkable levitation, often being drawn away by God for some distance. And it, it was so profound that it was sufficient for St. Gerard just to think, to think of the love of God or to contemplate the mystery of the Incarnation, cast his eyes upon a crucifix, or picture the Blessed Virgin or be in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. And bang, away he'd go. <laughs> it, it's unbelievable. Now, but through faith we know it's true. We believe because we're believers. Now, one of the examples, uh, St. Gerard, was he was uh, intending to spend some days at Olivetto. And he received the hospitality at the house of a, a priest named Don Salvadore. And the miracle took place in the very morning of his arrival at Olivetto. Gerard had withdrawn to go to his room to pray. And at the dinner hour, the priest went uh, himself to invite. He was an archpriest, by the way, too. Went to, to invite himself to dinner or invite St. Gerard to dinner. But to his astonishment, he found that his brother ravished in ecstasy and raised three feet from the ground. Filled with amazement, the archpriest withdrew. But returning shortly, he found him in the same state. Now, the whole household were all witnesses to this extraordinary event. 
and unable to sit down to dinner, they awaited their guest with tears of emotion. At last, St. Gerard appeared, his face in flame. Please do not wait for me, he said. I do not wish to inconvenience you. And to preserve the memory of this rapture, the archpriest marked on the wall of the room the height to which he had seen the saint elevated. And again, as I mentioned up here, we've got that uh, great, uh, great center that does so much work for the, uh, uh, against abortion. It's just so uh, great that they do. Okay, now, some of my favorite things here. Uh, miracles of the saints over nature. And this is so neat. And I, I'll tell you one of my favorite ones. I'll give you a couple examples of this. But, of course, St. Francis, uh, beloved saint, lover of creation, saw God in the works of creation, sought peace. A very, again, simple man. It suffered greatly, as we mentioned earlier in the show, with the stigmata. And, you know, he went blind. He had a, a difficult time. It wasn't all beds and uh, flowers and roses for him. He had dissension with the order he found. They turned against him, his own brothers. He was in great pain, and he lost his sight. And, of course, he died. And it was in a very, very difficult for St. Francis in his life. So it wasn't all easy going for this saint. But he was given great graces from God because of his belief, his 100% belief in God, the miracles that God enacted in the world to rebuild, as God told St. Francis, his church. And it wasn't just the one he started building, rebuilding brick by brick, but the entire church in the world was, uh, and had great trouble at that time. Anyway, we know that St. Francis traveled a great deal. And in one of his travels, he was going to pass through a town called Gubbio. And it was strange to him as he entered that there were no townspeople. The town, even in the daytime, was like a ghost town. And he wondered where they were. And then he saw two soldiers come out. And he saw a man. And they had a crossbow. And he asked, where, where are you going? Where are the people? Oh, they said, we're going out to kill the wolf. He's been eating not only uh, our livestock, but he's been eating us and the children. And they were terrified. So these men, and they had tried to hunt him down before. They were going out. They were going to try and kill the wolf. Because as they told St. Francis, this wolf, very big and very dangerous, it is an evil evil animal. And St. Francis said, if you don't mind, I'd like to try my hand at this. And of course, they were willing to give him the crossbow, and he refused it. No, no, that's, I have no need of a weapon. And he, they were astonished. He said, no, I'll, I'll just let me go to the edge of the woods. And they wanted to accompany me. No, no, don't, don't worry. Just let me do this. Let me give it a shot. And he went to the edge of the woods. And sure enough, a huge wolf Eyes glowing, teeth bared, frothing at the mouth, just evil personified on the edge. And St. Francis admonished the wolf and said, Brother Wolf, you are causing great harm to these people in their village and their animals. And you cannot do this because it's against God that you're, you're going to do this. I don't want you to do this anymore, Brother Wolf. And the wolf of Gubbio walked up to Francis. And St. Francis told him, if you stop this behavior, Brother Wolf, I will make sure that you are fed and that you will live in peace and no harm will come to you. And the wolf put its paw in St. Francis's hand. And he led him back to the village. And the people were astonished. And from that day on, that wolf that was so feared became like a pet, a dog, to the townspeople and the children. And he was well, well loved. So well loved and such a protector of those children and that village that wolf became. That to this day, when that wolf died, they erected a statue 
that stands there today of the wolf of Gubbio. And when that wolf died, they mourned tremendously. So a power of a saint having uh, power over nature. And uh, so these are the things that we want to, to concentrate on because, you know, some of the stories like uh, St. Anthony, such a great preacher, getting frustrated with the townspeople and not, not, they didn't want to listen to him. So he said, well, if you won't, I'll go to the lake and preach to the fish who will. And sure enough, that's what he did. And sure enough, the fish came, lifted their heads above the water, and listened to him and his preaching. So th- there are many stories of the saints with animals. And you know, in, in the Bible, this is true too. We have we have the talking donkey in the Old Testament. And, you know, these are, again, ones that you can bet your, your very life on that they're true. Now, the um, other uh, miracles that I mentioned, I mentioned again uh, that some of the spiritual gifts that we have uh, we know these like also from Corinthians where St. Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, that we have the gifts of tongues. And that's a gift that you have to be open to. And if you've ever made a, a Life in the Spirit seminar, they pray for the gifts, and that's a common one for people to get. And it's being able to pray in a language that the Spirit knows that's direct to God. Now, some people have the gift of discernment where they can understand, they're given the ability to understand, let's say that the gift of tongues took place in a congregation. Let's say it was at a Life in the Spirit meeting. Well, as people are praying for tongues, other people will be able to repeat what those people were saying in a language, again, between the Spirit and God. So that's called the gift of interpretation of tongues, and some people get that. Not only the gift of tongues, but the gift to interpret those tongues. And we know where does that come from. Apostles are hiding out, right? And we know that they need to see Christ, and they do. And that inflames them. And they're on fire, but not yet with the Holy Spirit yet, are they? Not until Pentecost Sunday. When the tongues of fire appear over their heads, and they're all able to talk in the languages of that time with all those people gathered there, and were able to understand what they were saying. So the gift of tongues, right back to Pentecost, a gift of the Holy Spirit, and that's available to us. Because remember that, when we were baptized, we get 100% of the Holy Spirit. At our confirmation, when we start to get into the age of reason, if we can be willing and open to ourselves, to the gifts of the Spirit, He's willing to flood them with us. Especially if we request them, we ask for them. Remember, ask and you should be given. Knock and that door will be open. So we should be doing that to pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit with expectation that you'll get them. Now some, and St. Paul talks about this, some have that gift of prophecy. We mentioned a couple tonight with the, the, of the saints. Others have that interpretation of tongues and the gift of tongues. Some have, and this is a great gift, the gift of of healing. I think of Father Bob the Grandis uh, with a tremendous gift of healing. And others have the word of knowledge where they get a message from God to edify the community with what God wants them to know and then act on. So these are all gifts. And again, the gifts are meant to edify the people. They're not an end in themselves. They're a means to an end to bring us closer to God by, by edifying one another. Now, the, um, uh, what was I going to say? Lost my train of thought, excuse me. Yes, and of course, to go back to those Eucharistic miracles, that's a miracle that we take for granted so often. Where I just heard that 70% of the Catholics don't even believe that the Eucharist is God. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable, and that's sad, because that's the core of our faith. And if you throw the core of our faith out, you might as well throw what we're talking about tonight, the miracles, the supernatural, Satan, hell, death, judgment, heaven, out the door. And unfortunately, that's probably a problem why we're not having the numbers we used to. There are many reasons for that. There's just not one. 
you know, my generation, unfortunately, wasn't raising their kids in the faith. So you have this, this apostasy, if you will, starting to, to spread, and that's very difficult. But that Eucharist is an incredible miracle that we receive if you're a daily communicant seven days a week. Think about that. This, I mentioned Lanciano, one of his stories tonight. That's where that Eucharistic miracle took place. Santa Rem, there are many Eucharistic miracles where the host turned into the flesh and blood of Jesus and is still, even back in the medieval ages or before, it's still that way today. They have done with the technology today, taking small samples, and they know that it, it is, uh, the, all of these miracles have the same blood type, and it's cardiac mus- muscle. And not only cardiac muscle, but cardiac muscle under duress. Think about that. Christ was crucified. It's incredible. And we take it for granted. Please, Catholics, believe in the Eucharist. It is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And we need to know believe, and love this great, great gift. Now, we know through Scripture that there are many physical cures. I mentioned, like with the handkerchief and the shadow, and certainly Christ healing all those people. I mentioned just a moment ago, Father DeGrandis, where people have come out of wheelchairs. They've gone in in crutches. They've been cured of cancers. Again, we don't know why some get these gifts, the healings, uh, we, others don't. We have to accept it. That's the childlike part I mentioned. We've got to be willing to realize we don't have all the answers here. We don't. And in the next kingdom, we can get them, I guess, if we want. But I think if we're going to be with God, you know what? We're just going to be happy. It, it won't matter. It won't matter. The mysteries, I don't think, in my personal opinion, won't matter because you'll be with them and that's going to be plenty, plenty good enough. Anyway, I want to, because I didn't want to do three stories of Padre Pio. Again, I'm using him because he's a modern saint. This is not something that goes back hundreds of years. He died in 68, 1968. But I want to just touch on a cure of his because we know, again, that there are healings. Now, um, one of the things, this happened in the summer of 1919, so it's in the, the uh, modern, world, uh, modern age, and it reached the general uh, public in newspapers. And this one here was w- witnessed by uh, Padre Paulino, and it concerned one of San Giovanni Rotondo's most unfortunate persons, a mentally and phys- physically handicapped old man named Francesco Santarello. He was so club-footed, he wasn't able to walk. Instead, he dragged himself on his knees, supported by a pair of miniature crutches. Think of that, if you would, this poor man on his knees with two crutches. And this man, unfortunately, would labor up the hill to the fiery monastery each day to beg for bread and soup. So he has nothing, because probably because of his physical inability, his handicap, he can't work. So on top of this, he has to go on his knees up the hill to the monastery just for bread and soup. Bread and soup. And he's done this for years. Now, poor Santarello was a fixture in the community, and everyone knew him. Some of the more uncharitable children of the town loved to tease the unhappy beggar. Like I say, the more things change... More things stay the same. Going so far at times is to knock him off the crutches uh, and under his shoulders and then laugh as he tumbled onto the pavement. Now, one day Santarello was positioned as usual near the door of the cloister, begging for alms. And as usual, a large crowd had gathered awaiting for Padre Pio to emerge and enter the church. As Padre Pio passed by, Santarello cried out, Padre Pio, give me a blessing without stopping. Pio looked at him and said, throw away your crutches. Stunned, Santarello did not move. This time, Padre Pio stopped and shouted, I said, throw away your crutches. And then without another word, Pio entered the church to say Mass. In front of dozens of people, Santarello threw his crutches away and for the first time in his life, began to walk on his deformed feet 
to the utter astonishment of his fellow townspeople, who but a few minutes before had seen him lurching about, as always, on his knees. What an incredible, incredible healing. Now, uh, I had mentioned about the incorruptibility of saints and how one of the two famous ones, and I mentioned earlier one, St. Jacinta, Marto, and St. Bernadette, St. John Vianney, their bodies in the K. And I want to tell you uh, another story as we get ready to wrap up the show here because uh, it's still Christmas. And on December 16, 1898, while at the elevation of host during Mass, St. Charbel suffered a stroke from which he never recovered. And eight days later, on Christmas Eve, he was seven years old, he died. He had been a priest for 39 years. Now, according to monastic tradition, the body was not embalmed, but was dressed in a simple cassock and was placed in the monastery chapel for 24 hours. The body was then conveyed to the monk's burial chamber in the presence of his confreres and village folk who had braved the snow and cold to witness the interment. Now, the villagers who lived in the houses facing the monastery saw a great light over the tomb that night following the burial. This phenomena reoccurred for 45 nights. 45 nights. This apparition of light together with the enthusiasm of the faithful, encouraged the ecclesial authorities to open the tomb and transfer the grave, the remains of the grave, to more accessible villagers so they could pray beside it. And then the tomb was opened on April 15, 1899, in the presence of the community and ten witnesses who had been present at the burial four months earlier. And they were unanimous in testifying that the water had undermined the burial ground, turning the tomb into a quagmire. And the monk's body actually floated on the mud. So when the body was clean, it was found perfectly incorrupt. The muscles were supple, with the hair of the head and beard of St. Charbel intact. It was also noticed that a serum mixed with blood seeped from the pores. And they placed the body in a wooden coffin that was glass on top and carried into a small oratory. From then on, because of the great amount of blood seeping from the body, the clothing of the saint had to be changed twice weekly. Now, obviously, the news of this phenomena prompted ever-increasing numbers of visitors who for 27 years were permitted to view and touch the body. The phenomena is even more astounding when one considers that in 1918, following a simple autopsy, the body was exposed on the terrace during the heat of summer for three months without initiating decomposition nor drying the source of the fluid. Now, um, when the, during February, um, also the year 1950, I want to point out that uh, pilgrims in the chapel noticed that the watery fluid streamed from a corner of the tomb and crossed its way on the floor of the chapel. And the fluid that they had saw was traced to a corner of the casket where the liquid was seen dripping through a crack. 23 years after being placed in this tomb, the body of St. Charbel again was examined in the presence of numerous authorities and was found completely free of any trace of corruption and was perfectly flexible and lifelike. Now, obviously with this going on, authorities petitioned Rome for beatification and a, a reburial was conducted. And the body then had been placed in a new coffin with wood covered with zinc. And various documents now, composed by physicians, a notary, superior's order, were placed in a zinc tube, which was placed before the body and the coffin sealed. And so this new tomb, again, was in oratory. And I mentioned that in the even in the year 1950, not too long ago, that this fluid was traced back to this coffin. So for 67 years, the remains of this saint remained perfectly pres uh, preserved and was repeatedly examined by physicians with modern training, modern training, and the conclusion of modern medicine 
was that the preservation was inexplicable by scientific principles and that such preservation was contrary to the natural laws, leaving even the most skeptical to conclude that the holy remains of St. Charbel were supernaturally sustained and preserved from any corruption. Now, how is that as we end our program for documentation? And brothers and sisters, with that, think of the miracles you've had in your life. Pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Be childlike and open. Be wise. And trust in the miracles that God gives us each and every day, especially in the Eucharist. And hold on to those miracles. Let them build your faith. And let them glorify God so that they can become more effective in your life as Christians. God bless. Merry Christmas. And I wish you a very happy, holy, healthy New Year. Good night. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.